Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Abby Joseph Cohen has been a partner since Goldman Sachs, since I think it was 2008. I can't remember. It's back a few years. She is their advisory director and senior investment strategist, and arguably no one has ordered America to participate in the equity markets like Abby Joseph Cohen. We're thrilled she could join us this morning. Abby, reaffirm this morning why we need to participate in the stock market, given the sum of all our fears. Uh, Tom, well, good morning to you, um, and thank you for inviting me to to be here today. Um, You know, what we know about the stock market over a long period of time is that if you have confidence in the economic outlook, equities are usually the best place to be. Um, And clearly, that has been the case now for an extended period. And I think that one of the important things for investors to think about now is valuation. Um, you you, you want to participate in equities, but you want to make sure that you're doing it at the right price. Um, And one of the things that you and your colleagues have spoken about very clearly already this morning is that interest rates um, may be becoming uh, less friendly uh, than they have been uh, towards valuation. Uh, When we look at the valuation models that are used by so many investors and so many um, analysts, including those at Goldman Sachs, uh, there's this general sense that the market is roughly at fair value. And that sounds like, you know, not bad. Um, If you believe that this will in fact be a protracted economic recovery and then expansion, uh, not a bad thing. However, we're sort of on a knife's edge. Um, The valuation becomes less appealing um, if interest rates rise. Uh, My colleague, David Costin, who does this specific forecast, has been saying for a while now that he thinks that fair value uh, for the S&P 500 this year is 4,300, which mm-hmm. is pretty much where we are. One more point, and that is when you're at fair value, there's no margin for error. Um, if there are disappointments, um, be it on interest rates, right. uh, the disappointment on OPEC, for example, <clears throat> over the last few days, uh, that's where you start to see a big increase in volatility within the market itself. So many, would, so many would say, Abby Joseph Cohen, that none of what we're living right now was in your economic textbooks at Cornell a few years ago. For example, and I do this for my colleague, John Farrow, how do you respond to the confidence to invest given this colossally odd negative real yield? Um, great question that we're asking ourselves as well, uh, Tom. And and the answer is uh, carefully, very carefully. Um, we are in an unprecedented period, both with regard to an extended uh, length of time for these negative real yields. By the way, there have been negative real yields in Europe now for uh, quite a period of time. Um, and we are also in an unusual period with regard to nominal interest rates. Uh, so when we run our models, uh, we're looking at both those nominal and real yields and recognize that we truly are in uncharted territory. Um, so let me say one more thing as somebody who used to be a quantitative analyst. Um, I like to say I'm a reformed quant. Um, I use these models 
as a starting point. Um, I don't use them um, as gospel. I use them to give me some direction. Are we undervalued, fairly valued, overvalued? And then once we have that general sense of direction, what could go wrong and what could go right? Um, and as we take a look at things now, um, the things that could go wrong include uh, commodity prices. Uh, we've seen what OPEC has done. This, by the way, could be more of a problem for markets outside the United States. You know, in the US, uh, commodity prices are actually a fairly small component of our total cost. The second thing that I'm perhaps even more worried about has to do with public health. Um, you know, we, we've had these incredible uh, vaccines, extraordinarily effective, and now we're sort of bumping into problems with regard to distribution. Uh, in the United States, we think this will be a regional issue rather than nationwide. Yeah. But we take a look at the reopening of places like Europe. Uh, this is much more problematic. Uh, the distribution in Europe um, of their mRNA uh, vaccines. Right. Um, uh, really has been uh, lagging. Uh, it's one of the reasons that the GDP expectation uh, in Europe, continental well, Europe, is below what we what yeah. we would have liked to and see. And John, you've absolutely nailed that on world travel or the lack thereof. Well, the airlines have suffered because of that, Tom. And a cyclical story in many ways, sector to sector, the airlines have peaked. In the minds of some people, they're struggling now. The banks are starting to struggle a little bit as well over the last month. Abby, what was interesting in your response to Tom is that you turned to your process. And for the following question, I'm less interested in the call and far more interested in the process. The debate right now on the cyclicals is the debate it's always been over the last six months. Is it just a short-term reopening trade or something more durable, something more sustainable? What is your progress, process rather, to distinguish between the two things? What are the signposts you look for? Well, we're also looking at the idiosyncratic opportunities uh, because uh, just because a particular company happens to be in a particular uh, sector or industry, according to the S&P definition, uh, doesn't tell us as much as we need to know. So we're really looking at how individual companies have positioned and or repositioned themselves. Um, I happen to believe that there will be a movement ahead uh, in CapEx. Um, uh, we think there will be an infrastructure bill of some sort. Um, obviously, we're not privy to the negotiations now um, in the Congress. We think there's a desperate need uh, for spending on infrastructure, but there's also a need for uh, private engagement in CapEx. One of the things that we have seen um, in the last decade or so has been this decline in the use of corporate cash flow for these purposes. Um, uh, we have seen uh, much more of it uh, than usual go into things like uh, dividend payment and share repurchases. Um, those dividend payments um, may continue to increase, but uh, if you are a corporate CFO and you look at your current share price, you say, do I really want to be repurchasing uh, at these levels? And that's one thing that in addition to the need to expand fiscal capacity may in fact lead to improvements in CapEx. So the short answer to your question, John, is we do think that there will be a movement towards some of the industrials. Uh, and let's recognize uh, that industrials are, are all over the lot. And we need to look 
too, at the international trade aspects of this. Uh, some of the companies that have repositioned themselves well for the 21st century needs, including things like renewable energy, more efficient uh, processes, uh, the use of uh, improved metallurgy and so on. Some of these are U.S. companies. Some of them are outside the United States, but are important suppliers uh, to U.S. companies. Do you think that the impetus, though, for some of that CapEx spending and the potential for that uh, to finally sort of maybe get back to levels that we saw in previous generations, that that's going to come completely at the behest of these companies? Or do you need a little bit more government, government involvement to sort of move this along, Abby? <laughs> Yeah, well, let me uh, be careful when, when I discuss the numbers here, because I don't think we're going back to where we were 20 years ago uh, as a percentage of the total use of cash flow because of the change in the composition of the S&P 500. We now have so many more service-oriented companies that are not heavy-duty uh, industrial spenders. So we need to be looking at things uh, industry by industry. So I do think that there will be a, a movement back towards more uh, CapEx. Um, the thing that we're worries me most about government spending has been the significant de-emphasis of spending on things by the government that corporations don't usually spend on. And let me be more specific. Uh, and that is, uh, over the last several decades, in fact, going back to 1860, uh, the U.S. government has been one of the major investors in long-term basic research. Um, and what we have seen over the last 20 years uh, has been a decline in basic research spending uh, as a percentage of the federal budget. Um, I think this is a mistake. You know, we have to keep in mind, for example, that those terrific mRNA vaccines that we all are so happy to have now, uh, that initial research was done by spending uh, given by the NIH um, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, we forget... Uh, we I mean, you get that call. It's going to be David that's, Costin. That's David Costin. David's Costin very going, worried you might make a call yeah. because David Costin right now is 4,300 year end, TK, and we couldn't be yeah. more bored by that. Right He's, now we're at 43, yeah, well, 42. I, I have to tell you that that was my granddaughter calling. What did she uh, say? It's, it's her sixth birthday today. Oh. So, Abby, why don't you just take the call? Abby, take the call. Just say hello. Yeah, say happy, happy birthday. birthday. I will call her in just a minute. We're going to let you go, Abby. It's uh, good to catch like, up. We think this is more important. You want to make a more important point than saying happy no, birthday. I'm going to sing happy birthday to her and you don't want to hear my voice. <laughs> um, so, so basically, the federal government has been the basic provider of funds for research, but also for infrastructure. Um, and we have seen a notable decline in that over oh. the last 20 years. We just need to get back to where <laughs> we were. Um, and that would be extraordinarily helpful for long-term economic growth. Abby, thank you. It's good to catch up. Always Get on the eventful. phone. Get on Skype. <laughs> Abby Joseph Cohen there, Goldman right. Sachs Advisory Director, Senior Investment Strategist. Joining us now, the former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Frederick Michigan, is at Columbia University. And one thing I know for certain is everything he's ever written has paid great respect to markets as an observer of what our economics does. Rick Michigan, you, Peter Hooper, and Amir Sufi a number of years ago, two, three years ago, talked about a monetary policy, a Federal Reserve, a Phillips curve that was hibernating. Is our traditional monetary policy hibernating and someday we'll get back to it? Or are we moving on to some form of new paradigm? So I, I think you're right. We're hibernating. Uh, but the Fed, I think, um, uh, very well may be behind the curve. Uh, 
uh, that they uh, had basically two uh, uh, elements here, which is uh, one is that they've gone to this average inflation target, which I actually think is a good thing, but haven't defined it well enough uh, to actually anchor expectations the way they should. So I think that's a problem. But the other is that they basically uh, have said that the Phillips curve uh, uh, is, 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 is not something they're particularly worried about. Uh, but on the other hand, I think they will find out that, that, that it is hibernating and that there is an issue. And I think that the Fed will actually uh, end up doing what it has to do, but it may be a little bit late. So I don't think that it's so much that, that uh, uh, I think that they're going to be uh, uh, mugged by reality. I think that's what's going to happen here. Uh, unfortunately, I think that they, they uh, may be a little bit too complacent about the fact that uh, uh, the economy is running very hot, that, uh, that inflation, I think, is going to be less temporary than they think it is. It's true that there is a supply shock, which is temporary. Uh, but the real reality here is just uh, demand is, is really jumped a lot because of, uh, of uh, very expansionary fiscal policy and pent up demand uh, because uh, most Americans are financially much better off than they were before the pandemic and they have been able to spend. Rick, every data point we look at in the American economy over the last six months, year to date, call it the last seven months since the end of last year, has improved. With the exception of the participation rate in the labor market, how complicated do you think that is? Does that complicate things for the Fed, that this participation rate has just flattened out? Well, I think it's a, it's a, a surprise from what, we, what, the, what have typically happened before the pandemic. But, you know, we have a situation where a lot of people are basically uh, uh, wondering whether they want to go back to work the same way uh, uh, after the shift in terms of, of work at home. Uh, and so it does complicate things in terms of the deciding how uh, tight the labor market is. Uh, I think the labor market is a little bit tighter than uh, uh, used to be that, that uh, three and a half percent unemployment looked like at some of the natural rate of unemployment. It may be uh, somewhat higher in this case. So it is complicating things, but not in a way that they can't figure out. So I think as soon as uh, and the, I think a key issue here is a central bank never should take its eye off the inflation ball. And inflation has been very high. Uh, and if it's not as temporary as the yeah. Fed thinks it's going to be, they need to move and move relatively fast at that point. Are they already too late, though, Rick? I think they may be a little bit behind the curve. So, you know, the, the issue is that uh, uh, in some sense, there there is a little concern about deja vu all over again in terms of the 60s, uh, where the Fed was in a very similar situation, very accommodating monetary policy with, with very expansionary uh, fiscal policy. Uh, I don't think we're going back to the 60s, but I think that, they, that they're a little bit behind the curve here. Uh, and so that it's going to be more costly for them to get inflation under control. Uh, and that's added to the fact that I, I think they haven't managed their uh, new monetary policy strategy as well as they could. Uh, and right. as a result, inflation expectations may not be anchored as well as they should be. I want to go back to the mathematics of Rick Mishkin. And the mathematics describes folks the path of putting the genie back in the bottle. Rick Mishkin, how do we put the fiscal genie back in the bottle? I don't know if we can. Uh, the only thing that's sort of a bipartisan in, in Congress is uh, the unwillingness to worry about budget deficits. Uh, that, I, that I feel the Biden bill uh, that was passed was, uh, was much too large. It was, I think, a bad bill. Uh, that uh, it had uh, paying, paying uh, big checks to people who were earning $150,000 who were not at all hurt by the pandemic was a bad idea. I think they should have had more contingency in terms of uh, the $300 payment in terms of unemployment insurance, which I think is creating some problems for them. Uh, so, uh, and then uh, uh, there really is, or is, is no one in Congress right now 
who's really very serious about balancing the budget. The Republicans are perfectly happy to say, let's not spend when, in fact, uh, the Democrats are doing it. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, they certainly were not uh, 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 serious about uh, uh, getting fiscal policy under control during the Trump era. So I think we do have a problem here. Rick, just a final question from me. I'm just looking at the Bloomberg right now. We've just had a break of 130 on 10s. To four decimal points, your lower the session is 129.96. For you, yourself, from your perspective, what on earth does this bond market tell you at all anymore and at this point with a yield on well, a 10-year of 130? Yeah, I think I, I tend to differ. I think that there's more potential for problems uh, in terms of inflation than the bond market is, is, uh, uh, thinks. Uh, so, uh, by the way, I should tell you, I hope that the bond market's right and the Fed is right, that inflation will not be a problem. I think that'll be much better for the economy. But I think that the uh, balance of risks here now is one where uh, there's much more danger. So I think complacency, one of the things I worry about a little bit is complacency in general in the markets, uh, not just in terms of uh, the bond market, but also the stock market. And uh, that, could, that could be a problem uh, in the not too, too distant future. Hey, Rick, it's going to catch up. Come back soon. Rich Miskin there of Columbia Thank University. You. Thank you, sir. Let's kick off the morning with Jim Kerrin and Morgan Stanley <coughs> Investment Management, fixed income portfolio manager. Jim, let's go straight there. Number one question, the cyclical trade, the inflation trade. Is this still on? Well, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me on your show. And I, I do think it's still on, but we, we have shifted down gears. So, so, so let me just kind of unpack this and go through this Please. here a little bit. What we, what we have to understand is that the delta or the rate of change is really what matters the most to bond investors. So in the first quarter and even in parts of the second quarter, what we were seeing is rising growth, rising inflation, and an increase in policy easiness. Policy was getting easier. At this point, what the market is sensing is that we're past the peak. Growth is going to decelerate, inflation is likely to decelerate, and policy, we're past the peak in policy, and we're already starting to talk about ways to take that away. Now, that doesn't mean that the level of growth is bad. That doesn't mean that the level of inflation is, is too low, or that the level of policy easiness is, 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 is that, that, that policy is too tight. But what it does mean is that we're not going to, is that we're past the peak. So essentially the reflation trade that we're talking about is still going to be there. It's just going to take a bit longer to actually achieve these goals. So for example, if we start to think about the more macro elements that make up the reflation trade, right? There are three of those. One is that you got higher tenure yields. Then you got higher tenure yields or higher long-term yields and a steepening of the curve, which is pretty rare in and of itself. And you also got a weaker dollar. So what happened is when everybody got into the reflation trades, they were underweight treasuries, they had curve steepeners on, and they were short the dollar. Right. And now that, that, that the rate of change or the pace of that move is starting to decline, the second derivative, as they say, people are unwinding their short in the dollar, they're taking off their curve steepeners, and they're buying back right. their underweight in U.S. Treasuries, and that's what's making this all happen. Okay, Jim, brilliantly explained, but I want to go to, let's talk some math here, folks. It is Math Wednesday here uh, on Bloomberg Surveillance. Okay, you mentioned the Delta. If I look at the convexity in is, is um, uh, Galley, oh, Stephen Galley over at Nordia says today it's a bear squeeze. Okay, fine. The delta is the first derivative, the gamma is the second derivative. Right now, are you observing a convexity trade that overshoots and then we all climb back on the reflation trade? Or is there some substance to this lower yield um, market that we're in now? 
So, so I do think that there is a convexity component to this, and to the extent that you can overshoot lower. I do think that 10-year Treasury yields can get down to 1.2%, 1.25%. But I think, Tom, it's going to get hard to really get below that for any real material period of time, at least given what we know right now with the with the expectations for growth. I mean, growth this year is supposed to come in somewhere around 8% in the U.S. Next year, it's somewhere around 4 4.5%. Right. It's going to be hard for 10-year yields to stay as low, especially as the Fed starts to pull back and, and taper even a little bit. So I think this is a correction. The reflation trade is still with us, but it's going to take right. some time for these positions to get cleaned up. Okay, you know, Romaine, this is where you step in. If Lisa was here, she'd be talking the third derivative. Go at it. Okay, all right. I'm going to stick with the first derivative for right now, and that it remains the Fed, Jim, here. And we talk about the messaging coming out of them. It seemed like a few weeks ago there was general consensus, at least the perception, that there was consensus at the Fed here. It doesn't seem that's the case anymore here. And I'm wondering how you view the messaging coming out of the Fed and how the market's interpreting it. So that's a great question, Romain, because for the past couple of weeks, the hawks at the Fed have been absolutely winning the narrative in the marketplace. And now I think it's become a lot more dovish where people are taking the doves a lot more seriously at this point. So look, I mean, what did the Fed tell us in, in the middle of June at their FOMC meeting? Effectively, they said it's time to start talking about talking about tapering and, 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 and we need to see further substantial progress. Well, look, the data is good right now. The problem is, is that it's not good enough. And I think that's the debate at the Fed. It's not whether or not the data is good. It's always about, is it good enough to get us to the next level, which is for the Fed to enact a policy change. And right now, I would argue that the data is good, but I just don't see how, I just don't see an acceleration in the, in the data to the point where we're going to have unanchored inflation and that's going to cause the Fed to actually start to act sooner rather than later. So look, the mid- uh, 2023 dot, the expectation for the Fed to hike rates in mid-2023, I think that's valid. The problem is, is that the markets had started to push that in already to the end of 2022 for the first rate hike. Some had even earlier than that. So I think that's all going away. And as people push back their expectations for Fed rate hikes, probably into that mid to late 2023 area, bond yields are going to fall on that. Jim, the economic data can tell you so much. How the market responds to it can tell you a lot more sometimes. What's your read on that over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the markets are telling you that we're going into a period where we've, you know, where, where we're past the peak and that even if we look at the OPEC and the oil discussions right now, some people are talking about now more stable to lower levels in, 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 in oil. That's going to weigh on inflation. Uh, the jobs data uh, is, is not as strong as we hoped. It's strong. It's, it's still very, very good. So what the price action is, is effectively telling us is that they're chopping off that right tail where things are going to be great, but things just might be good going forward. And we recognize that it took a lot of policy stimulus, it took a lot of fiscal stimulus, it, it, it took a lot of work to get us to these levels. Now that now a lot of that stimulus is starting to go away, or it's already well known and priced into the markets, we need another catalyst to bring us back towards higher yields. Now that catalyst needs to be there is after 
everybody's cleaned up some of their positions. And I think the underweights in the dollar, the underweights in U.S. Treasuries, this is still in the process of being cleaned up. I don't think the trend towards higher yield is over. I think that it's just going to be a lot slower and it's going to be more of a grind. And we're going to have to see changes in the data relative to your point, relative yep. to the actual positioning in the market. It has been painful to commit to that trade over the last couple of weeks. Jim, it's good to catch up, sir. Jim Karen and Morgan Stanley, Investment Management. Right now, on your fear of Delta, of a variant that came from India, and can you imagine if there were variants from Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Ecuador, Guatemala, India, Ghana, Kenya, Mozambique, and Ethiopia, and that would lead to the expertise of Bhakti Ansadi of Johns Hopkins. To say she's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine doesn't describe at all her international epidemic study. Bhakti, do we underestimate the Delta variant if we're in Missouri, or for that matter, if we're in Manhattan, should we be afraid of these foreign variants? So I think it's somewhat challenging to call them foreign variants. Variants are variants. It's just where they were first discovered, right? And variants are emerging everywhere. Should we be concerned about variants? Yes. And there is a higher likelihood of variants emerging from countries that have lower vaccination rates or lower access to resources because they have a higher amount of virus um, in circulation. And so we should be worried until we have a global pandemic control, we will get new emerging variants, Doctor, both is, here and abroad. Is that something the U.S. should be concerned about, given the vaccination levels we've already achieved? Yes, completely. So we have to look at our sister country across the pond, the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had similar vaccination rates to us, around 60%. Now, 67% vaccination is extremely impressive. But despite that, we have seen consistently rising cases over the last six weeks in the United Kingdom, um, with cases almost doubling every single week. I think right now we're not seeing that in the UK, US, but there is a tipping point. Cases are on the up. So we should be wary. Cases are on the up. Let's use the UK as a case study. Is there anything to worry about as far as hospitalizations and deaths are concerned? So what we have found is that countries that have higher vaccination rates, hospitalizations are lower because even though vaccinated people can get the Delta variant and the Delta variant has been reported to be more dangerous, if you're vaccinated, your disease is likely to be less severe. Also, many countries have successfully vaccinated the elderly, those that are immunocompromised, transplant patients, cancer patients, those who are at highest risk of severe complications and death. Dr. Ansadi, this isn't totally unexpected. Uh, even when we started uh, down this path of vaccinations, there was a lot of talk about uh, new variants popping up and the need potentially to reformulate some of these vaccines uh, down the road here. What do we know about the process for doing that? So the vaccines are currently being constantly being evaluated. They're constantly trying to identify through genomic sequencing the mutations that are making the vaccine more brilliant and making sure that the vaccine mRNA matches those mutations. Um, it's an iterative process, but we know how to do this, right? We do it every single year with the flu and every year we are prepared with a new flu vaccine. So it's not beyond the realms of our capabilities as a country. And are we at a stage now where we have to start thinking about uh, these COVID variants as sort of an annual shot that folks will need, presuming uh, they're willing to take them? 
I think it's likely, to be honest. I think it's very likely that this is going to be something like the flu that sticks with us um, and that regular repetitive vaccinations um, are going to be needed. Now, flu is seasonal, which is where we have this whole annual shot. Um, with COVID, I think it's uncertain whether it'll be an annual shot or just a booster shot mm-hmm. um, as new variants emerge. Uh, Dr. Hansadi, if you were to parachute into Tokyo today and give counsel to a beleaguered government trying to do this ginormous event, okay, there are going to be no fans, let's say. But even with that, you've got many sports with multiple people involved, basketball, whatever. How do they do this given COVID? How do they do this given the fears of variants like we're seeing now in Spain, Portugal, and other places? So I think if I was flying in personally, I'd be saying, why are we doing this, right? When your vaccination rates are less than 20%, you're putting your populace at risk by inviting individuals who may be carrying the Delta variant, which we've already seen in Tokyo um, with the Ugandan team. Why are we doing this? Why why is it important to have the Olympics? Now, if you're going to have the Olympics, I think you would have to do universal mass mandates. I think you're going to have to like restrict unvaccinated individuals from entering gaming arenas. I think you're going to have to have on-site facilities for immediate um, isolation quarantine if someone has symptoms or is symptomatic, and then rapid, quickly available testing to be able to identify individuals who are symptomatic quickly so they can self-isolate. Doctor, good to catch up. Good to see you. Come back soon. Dr. Bhakti Haksati there, the Johns Hopkins Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.